Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, how do you get an interview with the richest man in the world and then get him to talk about Jesus on camera? How do you do that? Is that possible? Yeah, it's already been done. It's been done by our friends at the Babylon Bee. Elon Musk sat down with our friends at the Babylon Bee a few weeks ago, and we have on this program the CEO of the Babylon Bee, Seth Dillon Willis, with, easy for me to say, Seth Dillon with us, to tell us how this happened and give us some of the backstory of it and to talk a little bit about evangelism as well. So it's great to have Seth on. We talked before, Seth, we've never been on the program before. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Frank. Oh, absolutely, man. I thought that was just amazing that you guys were able to sit down with Elon Musk for almost two hours and ask him questions about anything, including Jesus. How did this all come about? What happened? It is it is amazing. I mean, this is one of those things. I, I said this to my team um, when it was happening, after it happened, I kept repeating it like you can't buy this. You can't. I mean, you can't <laughs> offer this man enough money to make it worth his while to sit down with you and talk with you for a couple of hours. Um, so, you know, the fact that it happened was just, you know, it was very fortunate for us. I mean, so we have, <clears throat> we've had kind of this relationship with Elon Musk on Twitter for a while where he's, you know, he interacts with our Twitter feed. He follows us on Twitter. Uh, he retweets a lot of our stories. He quotes them sometimes. Um, he comments under them. So we've had some interaction and engagement with him. And it was only a matter of time, I think, before we decided that, you know, maybe we would reach out and see if we could try to get him on our podcast. We did not plan it. We didn't talk about it. We didn't say, hey, now is the time. Uh -huh. It's just one of our producers happened to just reach out to him and send him a direct message and say, hey, do you want to come on our podcast? And uh, and he joked around for a little bit. He didn't answer that directly. He was like, what are you guys still doing in California? We have an office out in California. And he was giving us a hard time about still being out in California. He's like, it's nice weather, but it's the most expensive weather on the planet, you know, and all, all this stuff. <laughs> and uh, I jumped in and I said, hey, look, we'll leave California if you if you come on our podcast. And he said, deal, come to Austin, Texas. So uh, so that was it. We booked a flight. We booked a hotel. We booked a studio and we headed out there with our our, our, our production crew and uh, and just hoped that he showed up. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Now, how how soon after you had this kind of these Twitter DMs back and forth with him, did this take place, this interview? Uh, a couple of days, like 48 hours later. <laughs> that um, was it? I, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I was in Orlando with my family. We were at Disney with the kids, and uh, I, was, I wasn't planning on taking another trip, but uh, when he said, I'm available this weekend, you know, we couldn't pass the opportunity. We're going to try to make it happen. So I booked a flight straight out of Orlando, uh, with just the clothes on my back to head out there. And I was wearing the same clothes for three days because I didn't have anything else to bring with me. 
So, uh, so I flew out to Austin and met my team out there uh, just last minute and threw this thing together. There was a studio we rented that we set our stuff up in and, uh, and, it, and it came together. But I mean, he was very gracious. He gave us about three hours of his time. He talked with us for a little while off camera after the interview was over. Uh-huh. Um, and so that was, uh, it was really cool. You know, it's, it's, it's been an amazing thing. The, the, the doors that have opened as a result of the Babylon Bee getting a little bit more popular um, and generating a little bit of a following. It's, it's really cool that people are connecting with, including yourself, by the way. Oh, yeah. Well, we, I just love the Babylon Bee. And we're going to get into why I think it's so uh, effective. It's not just fun. It's effective a little bit later. But uh, this idea that you could direct message the richest man in the world and a couple of days later be sitting down with him to talk to him for almost two hours is just it's just amazing to me i wouldn't have known what to ask really other than well, you well, let me tell you this about so jesus what? <laughs> we had access to his his uh inbox on twitter for some time because he'd been following us for a while and we never messaged him and i was i thought about it a few times you know i i, I even maybe have drafted a couple of messages uh-huh. and then deleted them because i'm like i don't know what i'm gonna say i don't know if, we're, if this is gonna work and uh and our one of our producers just sent like this canned template that he would send to any you know just anybody that we were trying to book uh and there wasn't really like we didn't custom craft it or anything i didn't even know it was happening um i was surprised he responded to it honestly i i would have if i could go back i would have put more thought into the message that we sent him but hey it worked whatever works right now when we say the richest man in the world that's interesting but it doesn't mean he's more important than anybody else but it does mean his time is extremely valuable and he's very wealthy for a reason. He's brilliant. He heads up Tesla and also SpaceX. Uh, Seth, what do you know about those companies? Well, I drove a Tesla for a little while, so uh-huh. I have a little bit of first-hand experience with that with that product. I loved my Tesla. It was uh-huh. it was a fun car, man. It was so fast. It's ridiculous. It's like oh, yeah. right a, it's off like the a line. ride yeah. in a theme park. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I only know as much as I see in the news, and I see mm-hmm. him tweet. I've been following him on Twitter for a while, so I follow his updates on what he's doing with his you know, all these satellite payloads he's launching into space and all this stuff. So, I mean, I follow it a little bit loosely at a distance um, and was a Tesla driver myself. But beyond that, you know, um, I was never one of those, you know, uh, Elon Musk uh, fanboys who's just, you know, reading about everything he's saying and doing. Mm-hmm. I do think he's absolutely brilliant. Um, and, and it's very interesting to hear his takes on things. And I would agree with you that he's not more important than than other people. Uh, but But he is important in the sense that he's very influential. You know, everything yes. that he says... Mm-hmm. We, we discovered this ourselves firsthand. Literally everything this man says is newsworthy. People report on every word out of his mouth, which is, which is really phenomenal. It's an unusual thing that you have somebody with that much of, a, uh, of an audience. Now, he was brought up, as I understand it, in South Africa. And uh, he came to Canada when he was maybe about 17 and wound up somehow at Stanford University uh, and got involved in PayPal initially. Mm-hmm. And... I think you guys talked a little bit about this, that every time he made money in business, he poured it into the next business. And one of the most refreshing things I discovered in watching this interview, Seth, is that he felt such a responsibility to the investors of Tesla that he never cashed out and protected himself. Did you notice that in the interview? Yeah, yeah, that was really interesting. You know, he he, he kind of he, he frames this in moral terms too. Yes. That he felt it was the it was the right thing for him to do to mm-hmm. to continue to take on risk himself uh, because he was he was driving a very risky venture forward. 
Um, and instead of de-risking and taking a lot of that money off the table so that investors then assume that risk, he felt a kind of moral responsibility to stay on the ship as the captain uh, mm -hmm. all the way through, uh, which is interesting. You know, you don't hear you don't hear that kind of uh, um, uh, moralistic perspective from too many CEOs, I don't think. Um, and I don't know that he really did have those kinds of moral obligations. I don't know that, you know, you, you, you do have, um, you have the opportunity, you have the, uh, the freedom and the opportunity to cash out. You can cash out. I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. You couldn't fault him for doing that, but he felt personally, um, that it would be better if he shared that risk with the investors. Yeah. And he said several times that, uh, Tesla has been on the brink of bankruptcy several times. And mm. he could have protected himself by selling a bunch of his stock. And then if the thing went under, he'd still be whole. But his investors who had invested money in the company, they wouldn't be whole. So I thought that was noble of him to say, look, yeah. I never cashed out. And the same thing is true with SpaceX, which seems to me, I, it just amazes me that, you know, he, he wants to go to Mars, as <laughs> you yeah. talked about, and colonize Very Mars. Ambitious. But yeah, I can't think of anything more difficult than that. Yeah. Uh, to do that. Now, I don't know much about SpaceX. Is is he putting satellites up with that? Is that what he's doing as well? Yeah, he's launching a lot of payloads into space. Right now he's working on something, uh, Starlink, that's going to, you know, beam internet down to mm -hmm. the entire world. Um, so there's, I think there's like 1,400 satellites that are now in orbit um, mm -hmm. through that initiative. So yeah, he's, and I, I think other companies are paying uh, him, you know, as a private operation that launches payloads into space you know he's paid by other other companies you know like the at&t's and verizon's of the world to launch satellites up there i, I don't know the you know the extent of the business model but mm -hmm. um but that's one of the things that they do yeah it's it's very cutting edge and those he said all of his wealth is in those two companies he hasn't really diversified right he's got tesla yeah. stock he's got tesla uh, the tesla stock and spacex stock and that's why he's worth i don't know how many billions anyway we're talking to my friend Seth Dillon, the CEO of the Babylon Bee. We're going to talk a lot more about the Elon Musk interview and also what he said about Jesus and how do we evangelize people? What's the best way of doing it? We'll talk all about that in just a couple of minutes. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, back in two. If you're low on the FM dial looking for NPR, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. As you know, this is also a podcast called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. So if you want to hear this again, just check out the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. My guest today is Seth Dillon, CEO of the Babylon Bee. We're talking about the Babylon Bee and also the recent interview with Elon Musk. And a little bit about evangelism, these kind of things. How do we move people closer to Christ? Were they able to do that with Elon? All that. We're going to get into it in a minute. But before we do, uh, Seth, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the Babylon Bee. I mean, I knew about it years ago. I think it was a guy by the name of Adam Ford started it. And uh, then you took over. How did that all happen? Yeah, so Adam Ford is a, uh, well, he started out as like a comic artist. He was making these Adam Ford comics online, these little comic strips that had a mm -hmm. message in it and a purpose, you know, and. Um, he was, he was evangelizing with his comics and he was also, uh, you know, pushing back on pro-choice arguments in favor of pro-life and, uh -huh. and his comment, his comics were, you know, they were Christian comics and he, he produced some books and stuff off the back of those. Well, he developed a following doing that and then, um, and then leveraged that following to launch a satire site, which he felt there was need for because, um, 
you know, there was so much there was so much comedy being done effectively, being done really well from a really liberal and secular perspective. Um, right. Nobody really doing it from a conservative Christian perspective, at least not very well. So um, he saw some opportunity there to jump in and do something, felt he had the talent and the ability to do it. And I think the evidence that he did was in the response that he got. I mean, the site just went viral immediately, really yes. immediately. And so it caught it caught my attention really early on. Um, it launched in 2016. I started talking with Adam by the end of 2017, 2018 about investing in it, but he wanted to sell it. So he did. Okay. I ended up taking it off of his hands in 2018. And he's he stayed on as an advisor and still owns a piece of it. But um, but we're out. We're now partnered together on a couple of business ventures. So uh, we have a really great friendship and business relationship. But, um, you know, I, I start I was a fan. I was a big fan of the B. And All I just right. saw that it had. Like you mentioned before, that it's not just funny, it's effective. Yeah, yeah um, very And effective. I, I recognize the effectiveness of the satire, the humor, um, and uh, and how disarming that is and how it can communicate truth to culture in a very unique and effective way. So um, I saw a real uh, kingdom purpose in getting involved, and it's been honestly just the most fun thing. Now, how does it work internally for our listeners? They don't, you know... Uh, uh, how many people work there? How do they come up with these stories? I mean, you, you publish six to eight a day, which is a lot, actually, you know, of satire stories. How, how do you guys do this? You know that number, because I mentioned it in the interview uh -huh. with Musk when he was rattling off all these impressive things that he does. And, you know, right. the payloads he's launching into space and the Neuralink that he's building that'll that'll cure paralysis and all of uh -huh. this stuff. And I'm like, well, we publish six to eight <laughs> articles a day. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I mean, we have a small crew. Um, we have like a dozen writers and mm -hmm. uh, we have other other staff on top of that, like developers and designers and uh, and video production people and, and, and things of that sort. But the creative people, the writers uh, there's about a dozen of those. Um, they have like a virtual writer's room because we have them all on Slack just communicating with each other. And the, the job is simple. It's look at the news every morning, see what's going on in the world, and try to top it in terms of absurdity and exaggerate mm -hmm. it to make a mm -hmm. point. And, and it, I think that people have this misconception that this is easier to do now than it used to be because the world is so crazy and so absurd. But I go back, I quote Chesterton, who said back in 1911, the world has become too absurd to be satirized. I can't believe he said that back in 1911. Uh, I feel like it's even more true today, much more true today than it was back when he said it. Um, and, th and that does make the job a little challenging. But but that's that's really what we do is we look at the headlines and then we try to exaggerate what's going on in the world to, to make a point about, you know, to point out hypocrisy, double standards of some kind, mm -hmm. uh, mock a bad idea that needs to be ridiculed, something like that. Oh, yeah. You, well, you guys do a great job at it. And I'm reminded of a quote that Max McLean told me. Max McLean, the, uh, the C.S. Lewis actor who uh, is with Fellowship of the Performing Arts, uh, he quoted a theater director by the name of Harold uh, Clerman, who was big in the New York theater scene back uh, in the last century. And here's what Clerman said. He said, get them laughing and when their mouths are open, pour truth in them. Love that. Which, which Love is that. it's just so perfect because... Yeah. When you start laughing, uh, you you allow things in that you might not if you're serious. And that's what yeah. laughter and satire does. You can make a point through satire that would sound too preachy or too off-putting if you tried to do it directly. Definitely and, too off-putting. I mean, I think there's yeah. a lot of controversial topics that people don't want to address in a straightforward way where they say, hey, look, I think this is wrong. You know, mm -hmm. I think that you're wrong. Um, you know, you get really confrontational with people and, you know, there's a lot of different tactics. I know you're familiar with a lot of tactics and mm -hmm. engaging people in debate and trying to be persuasive. 
Um, and, you know, telling people how wrong they are is usually not very effective. Um, but, you know, asking questions is very effective and leading with humor is very effective. Oh, yeah. Um, I often say that, you know, when you the, the way that I had put it was when you wrap a message in the package of humor, it's very easily delivered and received. Um, but I think uh, I'll quote Chesterton again. I, I love the way that he put it. He said humor can get in under the door while seriousness is still fumbling at the handle. And I oh, love I like that, that, too. I yeah. think that's a great a great way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Right now, uh, I'm recording this on Wednesday. Here's the latest headlines from the Babylon Bee. Democrats warn that Republicans plan to steal election by blocking Democrat efforts to steal election. <laughs> <laughs> That's obviously dealing with uh, Biden's, uh, Biden's uh, vote uh, deal that he's trying to get through. Yeah. Um, couple with joint Facebook profiles, preferred pronoun is they. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's a lot of uh, that, yeah. that, that first one that you mentioned. You know, sometimes we're just kind of reporting the news. I think yeah. as we see it, we're just doing it in a, in a in a way. You know, we're actually telling you something that's true. We're just saying it in a very uh, in a hum it's we're putting a humorous spin on it, and 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 actually just kind of bluntly putting it out there. Um, it's one of the reasons our tagline is "fake news you can trust" because there is in <laughs> fact a lot of truth to the satire. We're often criticized because the the jokes are uh, easily believed. Oh, they um, are. But, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think that that's a critic. I don't think that that's a problem with satire. I think, in, in fact, I, I would say that you know, if if your jokes are so divorced from reality that no one could possibly believe they were true, then then you're not doing it right. They're not going to be funny. Yeah, uh, yeah stuff is funny point. because so you, because you it have is to true. right on the back of the truth. Yeah, stuff right, is funny right, because exactly. there is some truth in it. In fact, I exactly. remember several years ago you had a, I can't remember the exact headline, but it had something to do with Twitter shutting down to avoid uh, Trump. Uh, from putting out tweets or something like they shut the whole network down and Trump retweeted yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, mean, yeah. The president <laughs> of the United States retweeted a Babylon B headline thinking it was I, true. You know, he commented on it. I think his comment was something like unprecedented. This has never happened That's before or something like that. <laughs> he was taken yeah. in by it. So there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of outlets that were actually writing about that, how dangerous it is that satire is so believable that even, you know, the leader of the free world can be taken in by this ruse. And, uh, you know, it's just it's it's crazy. Satire is not intended to mislead people. It's it's intended to. Uh, to uh, again, like speak truth to culture, uh, to to ridicule bad ideas, um, to entertain and inform. Um, you know, the point is not to get people believing false stories, but every now and then, you know, because they are cl close to the truth, it is difficult. I blame reality. The problem is that reality is too close to satire, not the other mm -hmm. way around. Mm -hmm. That's right. In fact, uh, Walgreens in in San Francisco had to shut down more than I think twenty stores because they couldn't stay in business with the San Francisco law, which said you can basically shoplift $1,000 and we're not going to do anything. So the headline of the Babylon right. Bee is San Francisco Walgreens introduces new frequent looter rewards punch card. <laughs> You've got a guy in his ski mask with his punch card, a looter. I mean, and there you go. I mean, look, they're incentivizing it. It's it, they that's, are. The, that's the joke. You know, it's it's incentivized crime. It's crazy. Uh huh. It's it, the stuff here is brilliant. I don't know. You probably reject probably for every one you accept, you probably reject what ten headlines. Oh, more than that. I, it, I, it's probably like we probably publish like two out of every hundred that are pitched. I mean, we um, we pitch a lot of headlines. The joke is in the headline. You have to nail the headline right. So we we pitch a, a lot of them all day, and then we yep. just kind of iterate on the ones that that look like they've got some promise until we get it right. Yeah, with this recent um, tragic event in. Uh, Dallas, where the, the terrorists took over the synagogue for a while, uh, obviously motivated by anti-Semitism. <laughs> 
the headline in the Babylon Bee related to this as FBI says they still haven't found a motive for 9-11. <laughs> because they, for a while, the FBI said, oh, we don't know why this guy did this, right? <laughs> There's no way to know. There's no way to know. Although, uh-huh. of course, in some cases, they know that the motive is racism uh, right away. You right know? away. So it depends on, depends on the details of the case. Right, right, right away. Now, uh, back to Elon Musk for a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was quite interesting that uh, he talked, and I've seen him do this in another interview as well. You know, he moved from California to Texas to avoid so many regulations. And he, 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 he talked about the idea that uh, these governments put regulation after regulation in place, and there's never any uh, effort to get rid of bad regulations. And he said, right. I felt like I was tied down like Gulliver's Travels. You remember that that kind of fairy tale where they you t- they tie yep. down the giant, yeah. And it it seems to me that this is actually a commentary on our culture right now. That if people aren't morally centered, if 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 the culture doesn't have a moral center, then we turn into the nanny state. You know what I mean? Yep. We we get so many laws because we can't trust people to do what's right, and we try and govern every aspect of their behavior. It's crazy. And, and the Babylon Bee does a great job of pointing that out with all this cancel culture stuff. Right. I think a lot of it comes, too, from good intentions with, this, with a misunderstanding about what, what compassion and what love actually is in practice. You know, the cliche stuff about you, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. If you teach mm-hmm. him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. You know, you mm-hmm. hear those kinds of things all the time. But there really is this kind of misplaced sense of... Uh, of uh, justice and compassion and concern for people that results in uh, this desire for the government to do something, to do something, to, you know, to keep help, to help people Mm -hmm. um, and to spend all of this money on all of these programs. And they're not always necessary. The the intentions are are usually good behind a Mm -hmm. lot of it. Um, You know, but the outcomes, of course, are what really matter. Right. And uh, and whether or not it really is loving, compassionate and helping people to do these things. Um, Those are those are big questions. Yeah, there are big questions, and history shows us, and human nature shows us, that the way to help people is to give them opportunities, but not to do everything for them. And unfortunately, uh, our governments think that if we just give people, I mean, you know better than I do, Seth, as uh, you're down there in Florida, I'm up here in North Carolina, I don't know about you, but anytime I go out, I see help wanted everywhere, right? We're hiring, we're hiring, and we can't get anybody to work for us, why not? Because Joe Biden's paying everybody not to work. We've been doing that for two years. They make more money staying home. And if the businesses paid them as much as they were getting to stay home, they'd go out of business. uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's amazing. But and people don't seem to learn this lesson. People, the government needs to know that in order to to have a, a robust economy, you have to incentivize people to work. Otherwise, many people won't. And that's the problem. We're talking to Seth Dillon. CEO of the Great Babylon Bee. If you don't know about the Babylon Bee, you ought to go there now, but as soon as the podcast is over. Uh, go to thebabylonbee.com. You'll, you'll be amused and you'll be encouraged. And we're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. I want to mention I'll be at the University of Kentucky, January 31st, 7 to 9 p.m. That's in Lexington, Kentucky. We'll be doing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Everybody is welcome. 
And of course, we'll have Q&A there. It will be live streamed as well, Lord willing. The next night, February 1st, University of Louisville, Kentucky, same thing, 7 to 9 p.m., it will be live streamed as well, but if you're in either Lexington or the Louisville area, would love to see you those two days. Uh, and we had our event delayed at Winthrop on February 8th, but my friend Jay Warner Wallace will be at Middle Tennessee State that day. That will be live streamed February 8th. Uh, check that out. And then the following week, February 11th, I'll be out with uh, Brett, my friend Brett Kunkel at Whitesburg Baptist Church, Huntsville, Alabama, both Saturday and Sunday. That's Super Bowl weekend, I think. Well, check all that out, and I hope to see you out on the road. Talking to my friend Seth Dillon, we're talking about the Babylon Bee, Elon Musk, the Elon Musk interview, evangelism. Hey, I got to ask you this, Seth. Uh, when you, <laughs> you, you text or you DM the richest man in the world, he says, sure, uh, yeah, I'll do an interview with you. You rent out a studio, how long right. were you waiting before you knew he was actually showing up? And he didn't just show up alone. Doesn't he have some sort of security team? I mean, what, you know, what, what yeah, happened there? Yeah. Well, we, we had no communication at some point. I thought maybe he would like hand this off to an assistant or something, uh -huh. you know, and an assistant would like plan this with us because uh -huh. there's no way he handles his own logistics uh -huh. and, and all these things. Right. Um, but, and I did eventually, day of, what we had told him, okay, we're going to be at the studio, 4.30 p.m. He told us, you know, early or early evening or late afternoon would be a bit of an ideal time. So we show up. Um, and we did get a text eventually saying uh, that he was going to be on his way and that his security was going to come check the place out first. So he had a, a little a, a team come in and, like, sweep the place first. They wanted a head count. They wanted to know where the exits were. Um, so, you know, he's got a... He's got a, a real security crew that travels around mm -hmm. with him that makes sure he's not heading into an ambush of some kind. Yeah, right, right. Um, so, uh, so yeah, once that happened, we knew uh -huh. the interview was really happening. Um, so, you know, then it was just a matter of sitting around and, and, and waiting for him to show up, and he, and he did. So, um, so that was cool. But it, it was really uncertain for a while because we never got a confirmation. When we told him, look, we're going to be there at 4.30, he made some joke about how, oh, well, that's on a Sunday. Aren't you supposed to be in church, you heathens? Uh -huh. <laughs> and, uh, and he's actually this – is, this is the funny thing. Like he's quoting one of our headlines. We have a headline. It's just, the headline is just go to church, you heathen, and we published right. that on Sunday. Right. Um, so, you know, he's, he's, he's letting us know that he's familiar with our jokes and he's quoting our headlines. He actually knows our headlines better than a lot of our own writers do. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I think he has admitted in the past that he, he has a mild case of Asperger's, if that's correct. And the people I know with that are very focused and he's very focused as you can tell and brilliant. Uh, although the sense of humor is a little bit different. I noticed that you guys had some pretty funny lines that kind of fell flat with him, but on, uh, some of the things he said, everybody was laughing. So how did that feel when you would throw out a line and it just kind of didn't go over? <laughs> you know, it's tough. Like when we do an interview, um, as the Babylon Bee, we're humorists, you know? Yeah. So we want to we want to think, we want to spend some time thinking what would be some funny things to ask him that people don't normally ask mm -hmm. him that'll elicit a funny response, some laughter, uh -huh. um, trigger some conversation that you wouldn't normally trigger with a guy like this. Mm -hmm. And so we did spend some time brainstorming and putting some notes together leading up to the interview. But most of it, you know, was just off the cuff comments. Things came up and there were opportunities to make jokes and we would crack the joke. And it was just like he would kind of nod and consider what we just <laughs> said as if we'd said something serious and he was contemplating it. And 
and pondering it. And it's it's just such an odd way to respond to humor. But then he would tell his own jokes and he would get a chuckle out of his own jokes and he would laugh at them. But it is tough when you're uh, when you're trying to read somebody and you deliver a joke and it falls so flat. That is very difficult. Um, we kept trying though. I, if, if you noticed, I, I, I continued to, to, to put them out there and try to make jokes. I didn't let it deter me. No, no, no. And, and, and your team asked him the question that I thought was hysterical, um, because with SpaceX, he's putting stuff up into space all the time. And, and so they said, well, uh, uh, you know, most of the time you design these, <laughs> these spacecrafts, Kind of looking like the male sex this, organ. Can you say it on your show? Yeah, kind of looking like the male sex organ. Could you do that? Could you make one in the name of diversity, in the name of inclusion, right. tolerance, and diversity of the female sex organ? And he started thinking about it. Like, let's right, see, right. could we do that? <laughs> you know? Yeah, it, it came down to aerodynamics, I think, was uh-huh. what he was. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So that was, I could see you guys were you didn't know really where to go with that because he st- then started to take it as a serious question. Like, how can he'll I do that? He'll give you a serious answer. You know, he'll give you a 10 minute long serious answer, mm-hmm. even to a joke question. So mm-hmm. um, that's, that's an unusual interview format for sure. Yeah, exactly. Now at one point uh, you asked him a, a question about materialism. Well, actually it was during at the end with the, the top 10 questions that uh, uh, Kyle and Ethan were asking him. We asked these of everybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the questions had to do with, uh, are you a uh, Arminian or a Calvinist? <laughs> do you remember this? And he's like, yes. what? <laughs> How did he handle yeah. that answer? It, 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 I actually liked his answer. It was really uh-huh. interesting. He, um, you know, he, he, he didn't know at first what we were talking right. about. You know, you, people hear Arminian, they think Arminian. They're not sure that they, they don't know that you're talking about, you know, the, 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 the question of free will, sovereignty, predestination. Right. Um, so um, he, he, when we explained it to him, we broke it down in terms of, you know, okay, well, how, determinism versus free will. Uh, mm-hmm. which, which camp mm-hmm. do you land in, determinism mm-hmm. or free will? Mm-hmm. And he said something to the effect of, I, I might botch the wording a little bit, but he said something to the effect of, my head says determinism, my heart says free will. Yes. That was his answer. Yes. Yeah. That, that is uh, reminiscent of what Greg Kokel talks about in his book, uh, Tactics, where he says uh, there's a tactic known as inside out, where... Mm-hmm. Um, what's inside of Elon in his heart is, of course, we have free will. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you go with the materialistic worldview, your head has to say, well, we don't have free will. But he knows in his heart he does have yeah. free will, yeah. right? So yeah. it's inside so you have a, you have of him. An education. Yeah, you have an education that tells you one thing about how the world works. Uh-huh. Um, you know, at bottom, it's physics and chemistry. There's there's causal interactions that are happening. Um, everything that you experience as a person, your consciousness and everything rides on the back of that. Uh, and in that context, it's hard to say, well, yeah, you're, you're, you're in control. Well, no, you're not. You know, the physics and chemistry are in control. Mm-hmm, but then mm-hmm. your personal experience as a human, as a person, as a rational thinking person who can draw conclusions, reach, make inferences off the, off the back of uh, uh, premises and a syllogism. Um, you know, these, these types of things, uh, you know, would, would seem to suggest that we have this reasoning ability and the ability to make choices um, that, that are at odds with what, what the, the materialistic picture tells us about how the world works at bottom. So, you know, our, our personal experience absolutely confirms free will. And it was, it was nice to see him admit that, at least, mm-hmm. um, that there's a conflict between what he, what he feels and what he's been taught. Yes. And as we've talked about many times on this program, for materialism to be true, 
there would be no way any of us could know it. Because the reason we think materialism is true is because physics and chemistry have driven us to that conclusion without any free will. So right. if we're going to say that materialism is true, we, don't, we can't know it's true. <laughs> it's, my, that's my, it's my favorite argument um, because mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, it's, uh, it's, I think it's best articulated in Lewis's Miracles in Chapter 3 when he's talking about the self-defeating nature of naturalism. Yeah, go ahead. Um, and and the, the this the argument from reason, I I've, the reason it's my favorite argument um, mm-hmm. is because it, it gets behind all the other arguments. That's right. You can't even have an argument at That's all. That's right. You That's can't right. reason about anything at all unless you unless a worldview that supports and validates reason is true. So if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna have as your premise a worldview that invalidates reason and makes it impossible for you to have free choice or or that anything be indeterministic or that you can actually draw rational inferences and have reason be a causal factor in reality that can actually determine what you will believe, um, then you have to reject a worldview that undercuts that and invalidates that. So I think it's, a, it's such a powerful argument because it gets behind all the other arguments. You're absolutely right, Seth. And so many people don't see that. In fact, let me read the argument. I don't think this is from Miracles. This is from another book, but he's saying the same thing. Here's what Lewis says. He says, suppose there were no intelligence behind the universe. In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. Thought is merely the byproduct of some atoms within my skull. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? But if I can't trust my own thinking, of course I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism. Uh, and and he says, I, sorry, I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I can't believe in thought, so I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. Very Boom. well said. Yeah, very I mean, well you, said. You, you can't, can't say, say it better it than Lewis. Yeah, you can't yeah. say it better than Lewis. So he just nails that point, and the inside-out yep. tactic points out that what is inside of you, what is inside Elon's uh, psyche, what's inside his consciousness, what's inside his soul, is of course I have free will. But mm-hmm. his his education, as you said, is trying to tell him, oh no, you don't. Well, right. if, if you don't, morality goes out the window, free will goes out the window, truth goes out the window, reason goes out, everything goes out the window. Argumentation now, itself you know, goes out the we're, window. We're unpacking this a little bit. I wish yeah. we had the time and uh-huh. the opportunity to do that in the interview and, you know, kind of dig into some of these things. And it's it's one of the things, if I could write down a list of regrets, you know, I would have I would have liked to talk a little bit more about that. You know, like, well, why, is your, why does your head say determinism, but your heart says free will? And then, you know, kind of give our opinion. But we weren't there to really debate him or try yeah. to convince him of anything. You know, the purpose of the interview really, um, and, the, and the reason he agreed to it, I think, is because he felt like it would be very friendly and we would just have some friendly banter with him and, and allow him to speak his mind. And I think that most people tuning into it wanted to hear what he had to say. So we tried our best to give him a platform to speak um, right. and not try to, you know, be engaging him as, okay, we're Christians and we're going to try to convert this man on the spot and and make him believe what we believe. Um, we wanted primarily, first and foremost, to hear him out. Well, I know that when the interview first came out, everybody was praising it up and down. But a week or two later, there were some people complaining that you didn't take a more direct, aggressive approach to try and evangelize him. How did this come about? Yeah, there were a couple people, um, some podcasters. There were some YouTube videos that started circulating. I think it was at least a week or, or maybe even two mm-hmm. weeks after the interview mm-hmm. had been put up on YouTube and it gotten a couple million views. I think it had to get out there a little bit. You know, people were sharing it over the course yeah, of time. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there were, yeah, there were a couple of people who took objection to that. Uh, part of it is, is a lack of familiarity with the format of how we do these interviews. 
Um, you know, we often engage people who don't believe the same things that we believe, um, you know, and, and, and we're not always, uh, trying to evangelize in those interviews. You know, we're, we're just trying to have a dialogue with them, a conversation with them. Um, and the 10 questions that you referenced that we do at the end of, of, of each of these interviews, they, they actually, it's meant to be a parody of these bad altar calls that come out of nowhere sometimes where, you know, there's there's this altar call that's made when the gospel hasn't even been clearly presented. And we're, we parody that with our interview format. And I think a lot of people missed that. Um, and they even missed the joke and thought that we were mocking the gospel rather than the bad altar calls themselves that missed the point of the gospel. So um, there was a little bit of miscommunication and misunderstanding, I think, that happened too. Well, let's talk about that right after the break. Is it your job to get everybody to the foot of the cross with every conversation? That's what we'll talk about right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, my guest. Seth Dillon, CEO of the great Babylon Bee, babylonbee.com. Check it out. We're back in two minutes. You're back listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk. My guest, Seth Dillon, CEO of the Babylon Bee. We're talking about evangelism, Elon Musk, their hour 45-minute interview, which you can see on YouTube, by the way. Two, two million people have seen it already. Well worth watching. And toward the end, uh, they asked Elon, you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And uh, so we're going to talk about that and talk about some other things he said about God and his upbringing. And Seth, I, forgive me, but uh, in the intro segment, I didn't give you the proper introduction. Here it is right here. Uh, I should have done that earlier. Okay. So uh, you did a great job, I thought, on the interview. But you did say that some people were upset that you didn't pressure him a little bit more about the gospel. Are, are there questions you would ask differently or things you would do differently in hindsight? Because I know for me, I don't care who I'm talking to. I always walk away going, I should have said that. I should have said that. What, what, what do you say? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, I think it's very easy for anyone, including ourselves, to be critical in hindsight. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you're never going to handle everything perfectly. There's always going to be curveballs thrown at you. There's nerves involved. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a ton of things. But, um, you know, I, I, think that, I think that when it comes to um, presenting the gospel, you know, I think we were talking to somebody. And there's, you know, there's different opinions on this and, you know, mm -hmm. not to say who's right and who's wrong, but we can give our own opinion here right now in this conversation. Um, when you're talking to somebody who has intellectual objections, um, and he did voice some objections, you know, one of his objections when he was talking about, uh, it's amazing that we got him to talk about this, but he started talking about the person of Jesus, who Jesus was, the miracles that he performed mm -hmm. and whether or not that was whether or not that was reasonable to believe, right? And he 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 referenced when he was a child, you know, he he heard these stories about Jesus, you know, multiplying bread to feed a large crowd, right. and it sounded you know absurd to him. Like, where did the bread come from? Um, you know, those types of things. He mentioned that Jesus was a good moral teacher, and that he uh, and that he uh, agrees with a lot of the things that Jesus said, and believes that he had a good moral philosophy. Um, and you know, these are things that 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 are, that stand in the way of him believing who Jesus really was, right? Mm. Um, if you can just write him off as a good moral teacher, then you don't have to deal with some of the other things. And if you can, and if you just dismiss the miracles, um, um, you know, you don't have to deal with the fact that he's, that he's divine. Um, so he, you know, he has some objections. He had intellectual objections. And I think that the, that the best way to approach things like that, if I could go back and do anything differently, I wouldn't have just 
gone straight into the gospel, I would have dealt more with some of those objections and said, for example, mm-hmm. the, 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 the idea that Jesus was a good moral teacher, mm. you know, um, we'll go back to C.S. Lewis again. I think C.S. Lewis addressed this so brilliantly with his, and I don't know if he was the first one to, to formulate it this way, but the, um, maybe it was Josh McDowell who put it in the liar, lunatic, Lord format. But he um, got but it this from trilemma. Lewis. Yeah, right. Yeah, he got yeah, it from he Lewis. Yeah, he got it from Lewis, but he yeah, put right. it in the LLL format, right, you know, right. the three L's. Right. And, uh, and, and, you know, this, it's this idea that Jesus, if Jesus was making these claims, these radical claims about himself, you can't call him good because mm-hmm. he would have been lying if he wasn't God. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't call him, um, you can't even say that he's sane. You can't say that he's sane if he, if he, if he actually believes these things and they're not true. Right. So, so either, either they're true and he really is God and he can forgive sins and, and all of the, and all of what he claimed to be able to do. Um, or he was either a lunatic um, mm-hmm. or a liar. Um, and so you have to pick which one is he. And, and, and a good moral teacher is not one of the options. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, having that conversation, I think, would have been very interesting um, because, you know, there are, of course, objections to that trilemma. But it would be interesting to hear how Elon Musk handles them uh, and what he thinks about that. Um, that's where I would have started because – and you can tell me what your opinion is on this. But I think that when someone has intellectual impediments, they need to be dealt with first mm-hmm. uh, because – uh, oftentimes what, what apologetics is able to do very effectively is clear some of those away so that right. the, the gospel message, when you're ready to present it, can get through to the heart and it's not impeded by what's in the mind. What do you think? No, I agree. That's what apologetics does. I think apologetics it does a couple of things. As you say, it clears away intellectual objections and it also edifies the believer to know that they're not yes. just believing a fairy tale, right? Uh, so both of those are important. And... Uh, I, I noticed that he did seem to go down the route of saying that Jesus was a moral teacher and that I, I advocate that he said, I advocate what Jesus said about morality, turn the other cheek. And he said, as opposed to an eye for an eye, which leaves everyone blind. Now, a right. lot of people look at an eye for an eye that way, but actually an eye for an eye meant to limit retaliation. That's what it meant. It wasn't like you have to take the guy's eye. Right. It, it should be it, proportional. Right? Yeah, it's proportional rather than what he said right. there. And love thy neighbor as thyself. Uh, but you're right. It seems like he thought, well, Christianity was just another system to try and help you be good. And I don't know if you caught this, but at one point he said, like Einstein, I believe in the God of Spinoza. Well, the mm-hmm. God of Spinoza was a pantheistic God who wasn't personal. Right. Uh, right. And, uh, and then he went on to say, well, if Jesus is saving people, I won't get in his way. <laughs> you know? So it was interesting to say, well, he's kind of like on the sidelines then. Well, I'm not going to be for you or against you, Jesus. I'm going to just, right. I just won't get in your way. Right. 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 But I think, I think you guys took the right approach because it, it was a, an interview by his grace that he, he gave it to you. And it was supposed to be a conversation, not a confrontation. It was supposed to be, you want to hear what he has to say. It wasn't going to be an ambush to say, okay, what about this and what about that? But I thought you guys with humor brought him to at least consider Jesus. You planted some seeds, and now somebody else can come along and water, and God will make it grow if and indeed that will happen. The other opportunity I think you have is maybe a year from now you contact him again. Right. right? Well, yeah, when you say yeah. someone else may come along, I mean, there's no yeah. reason why that's our last communication with him. That's right. I mean, we do have an open dialogue now with him. Um, and I think building trust in a relationship and making him comfortable does matter. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the comments that are saying, you know, you had the opportunity, you should have taken it. Well, what yeah. if we really turned him off and upset him, you know, right. and then he doesn't want to talk to us anymore. 
Um, I don't think we would have done ourselves any favors. Um, but you know, we may have opportunity to interview him again. We may have opportunity to have more conversations with him in those in, in direct messages or email or whatever. Um, and, and so, you know, and by the way, he still follows us. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, you make, you make him mad. He'll stop following you. We right. present the gospel. We often break character with, with the Babylon Bee. Like when we come to holidays like Easter, you know, like mm-hmm. we will and good Friday, like we will post an article that says report it is finished. And then we mm-hmm. just give a straightforward telling of what that means. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't, it's, there's no satire anymore. You know, we right. break character to do that. Um, he follows us. If he unfollows us, he doesn't get that content from us. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I think preserving the the good faith in the relationship and letting him speak and hearing him out uh, was a good tactic in the sense that we don't put him on the defense uh, and we don't you know we don't we don't turn him off. There was um, and and that goes that goes for anybody. It's not just because this man's rich and he's right. important, and so we want to fall at his feet and say, Elon, how can we make you happy? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's more just about what are the right tactics for how you engage people for this stuff. And mm-hmm. there's disagreements about how you handle it, and and you know we handled it the way that we did, and we're facing some criticism for that. We do have probably some regrets about what we what we said or could have said. Um, but you know, there's different ways of handling that. Yeah. Everyone has that. But I think the main point here is, and that's by the way, why you and I are speaking today, because you happen to see the promo for our last podcast where I was talking about, you don't have to bring everybody to the foot of the cross with every conversation. Number one, uh, evangelism is a process. It doesn't always happen immediately. Number two, if you go in with that goal, you're never going to do it because you, you, it's too intimidating. I got to get this guy from you know, where he is now all the way to the foot of the cross in one conversation, that's not real life. Right. It doesn't happen that way normally. No, it's sometimes right, it now, happens. What about to the people who say, at least present the gospel, at least give him, when he tells you okay. that he doesn't believe Jesus was who he claimed to be, then you can mm-hmm. at least verbalize the gospel and say, well, here's, you know, you're a sinner. Jesus died for your sins. You know, you don't have to repent and believe right now, but you at least need to know this is, this sure. is the gospel. Yeah, is yeah the, you could you say know. that. Yeah. I, yeah. But to, to to not ambush him, I think was was wise. But yeah, sure, you could have presented the gospel. Maybe maybe you could have done that better. Although I did notice this. There was one point when you said earlier he was talking about. I don't know if I can believe. He said when I was a kid, I was asking people where did the bread come from when Jesus actually multiplied loaves supposedly, and then you said, mm-hmm. well, where did the universe come from? Come from? And he kind of looked at you. And he said, yeah. well, I, don't, I don't say I have all the answers, right? right. <laughs> so he kind of didn't really deal with the, the, the direction you were going, which was saying, well, the universe that, came no, out of that nothing. Was an attempt, yeah. That was an attempt on my part to, rather than like try to just tell him what I think and why I think it, to challenge him a little bit with, right. well, questions. there are, you know, we have questions, you know, ask questions that elicit a response. His response, his response in that case was elusive. You know, he, he, he avoided dealing with that issue. Um, I think it's an interesting question because we do have an example with with the universe in particular of something coming from nothing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people think, including a lot of physicists and scientists, a lot of people over the ages have thought the best explanation of that is a supernatural cause beyond the universe, something mm-hmm. non-physical um, and, and timeless and spaceless itself. Um, and so, you know, if, if that's possible and that happened, um, then why is it impossible for God to make himself known on this earth and, and multiply some bread and fishes? Sure. If God can create the universe out of nothing, walking on water, parting the Red Sea, multiplying loaves, that's easy, right? Right. If Genesis right. 1-1 is true, every other verse in the Bible is at least possible. It's at least possible. Yep. You can't rule it out. 
And so I find it fantastic that people think it's too fantastic to believe that a guy could multiply loaves if he created the whole universe out of nothing. Right. Exactly. So exactly. That's where I was going. All I said was, uh well, the universe, where did the universe come from? That's where I was going with that, trying to start that conversation. Um, And we didn't get there. But, you know, it was a question to that end. And could I have asked more of those? Probably. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, again, we didn't want it to be confrontational. We wanted to hear the guy out. Now, we got just 30 seconds left. But can you tell us anything about the post interview conversation? I know it's probably off the record, but anything interesting that you can share? Some of it off the record, um, you know, more questions about us, how we came to, you know, how uh-huh. we came to be doing what we were doing, where we were looking to go with the business, uh, ways that he might be able to help us, which was wow. just really cool to hear him being supportive like that. Um, and again, you know, he may not have had have been supportive that way and wanted to foster a continued relationship with us if we had been too abrasive or too direct, yeah, and too, yeah. uh, too confrontational in the interview itself. So I think that was a sign that the interview went well and we'll continue to have dialogue with him. Seth, thanks so much for doing the interview here and doing it with Elon. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's Seth Dillon, ladies and gentlemen, BabylonB.com. And I'm I'm a subscriber at BabylonB.com. You ought to be too. Go to BabylonB.com and check out their website. You will not only get a laugh, you will be able to make points you can't make directly. You can share that stuff with everybody and you ought to. All right, I'm Frank Turk. See you here next week. God bless.